When disaster strikes somewhere in our country, there are thousands of men and women who are mobilized to be on the scene, doing whatever is necessary in that moment. But where do all these relief workers come from? Could you be one of them? That's what we'll talk about today on Here at Home. Welcome to the Here at Home podcast, a podcast about the people here at McGregor, their stories, their ministry, and their love for Jesus. If you're joining us for the first time, my name is Mark Bricker, and I'm the host for the Here at Home podcast. And thank you so much for joining us. We'll be bringing you a fresh new episode every other week, and we would love to have you be a part of our Here at Home podcast community. So go ahead and subscribe if you haven't already. And that way, you'll get each episode delivered straight to your podcast player. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with your friends. So let's welcome our guest today, Mr. Ron Cook. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. I am so glad to have you here and uh, hear uh, a little bit about your own story. So before we get started with that, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family. All right. Let's see. I am married to Nicole. Uh, we are coming up on 17 years uh, awesome. Here in a couple of months, we've got three amazing kids, Eliana, Caden, and Journey. Uh, and so a lot How of folks around they? the church probably see them. Eliana is 15, almost 16. Uh, be Kaden, driving soon. Caden is 13, and Journey just turned 11. Awesome. How long have y'all been here at McGregor? Uh, Nicole actually grew up here, and then I was first introduced to McGregor uh, around 2004 when we were married here, but we've been here really consistently now since 2008. Yeah, so that's been a while, about 13 years. That's right. awesome. Now, currently, you are serving as the Director of Disaster of Relief here at McGregor. Is that correct? Well, if you like that title, go with it, because <laughs> I really don't know. Um, Nobody's given you the official <laughs> title yet, huh? You know, with, within Disaster Relief nomenclature, they'd call me a blue hat or a team leader or something like that. But yeah, we're still working through all those details. Right. But you are, and how long have you been doing that here at McGregor and leading that, that ministry? Okay. So I've probably been involved in Florida Baptist Disaster Relief in some fashion for about 10 years. Right. And then about three years ago, I think it was, Wade and I started having the conversation, what would it look like to actually have a cleanup and recovery team based here out of McGregor? So we've been working on that now for about three years. About three years. That's awesome. So obviously you have a real heart for this type of ministry. Let's let's back up a little bit and 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 where does this heart passion for uh, helping folks in this manner come from? That's a great question, and uh, I've thought a lot about that. And uh, you know, I really got to back up to uh, you know the way I was raised. Uh, mm. I know that you used to pastor pastor in Mississippi, and uh, that's where I was uh, raised, where I grew up. And you know, there's just there's something inherent in the culture there that when your neighbor is in trouble or they need something, you go help them. Right. And so, you know, we never had an organized disaster relief, you know, program or anything like that. We didn't need it. That's just what we did. Mm -hmm. uh, when there was a problem, everyone responds and, you know, things get done that way. And so I think that's deeply entrenched in, in the essence of who I am, that desire to just show up when people are in need and, mm -hmm. and to do whatever we can to help our neighbor. Then fast forward a little bit and... Uh, <clears throat> Nicole and I actually met in seminary. We both went to New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, we'd been married for about a year, had a two-month-old daughter. And this hurricane named Katrina showed up. Mm, a big one. Uh, most people have heard of that one. <laughs> um, although I'm, I'm now starting to you know, talk to a few people who weren't alive then. That's a little <laughs> odd. But 
but yeah, that was a big one. That was a major experience for us. We lived in seminary housing, and so we had a first floor apartment, and uh, we had about 11 feet of flood water. Oh wow! Uh, <clears throat> in that first floor apartment, so we ended up losing all of our physical possessions. Um, you know, in vehicles and, and, and that sort of a thing. But beyond that, I mean, there's so many other emotional losses that get tied up in that too. You know, losing friends, losing, you know, progress in school, losing jobs, losing church community, losing so many things like that. And so there was just this tremendous sense of loss. Mm. And then after Katrina, it, it was really two months before we were able to go back into New Orleans and actually see our home um, in wow. person. And, and realize, confirm everything that we thought probably happened. You know, so it was, it was about two months there of just waiting and not knowing. Yeah. But, but then I, I will never forget that day, you know, walking into that apartment and looking to see, is there anything that I can still salvage? Some, yeah. You know, it's been sitting in toxic flood water for two months. Uh, and so there were very little, very, very little, obviously. Oh. But then we walked away. We, we had this tremendous privilege because we lived in seminary housing that we didn't have to clean up the mess. Hmm. We didn't have to clean out all of that stuff and go through the, the difficult process of throwing away these, these memories and the pictures and all of those things. Somebody else took care of that after we were long gone. And, and I look back on that now and think, wow, what a blessing. Because generally now with disaster relief, when we go in to help someone, they're on their own. Exactly. They don't have anybody else there who's, who's doing it for them or just taking over so that they can be free to move on with their life. And so that's where we come in. We come in to kind of be that that group of people that says you're not on your own. We're going to be here. We're going to be right beside you. We're going to help walk you through this. Yeah, probably most of our listeners have not experienced losing everything like that. So I want to back up just a moment. Sure. And what were some of your emotions and Nicole's emotions as you, I mean, you said you remember that day vividly. I mean, what else going through your mind when you're looking at pretty much your earthly possessions and they're destroyed? You know, I think it'd be really hard to... Uh, to put it into words. And, and, and even I'll back up a little bit more than that because, you know, when Katrina hit, it, it, was, it was God's providence that, that Nicole and our two-month-old daughter had actually already come down to Fort Myers for the weekend to visit family. Oh, wow. Um, so they were out of the way of it. I think it actually came here first, you know, much smaller. Um, but I had to stay in New Orleans. I was working, and so the, the company that I was working with wanted to stay open as long as possible. And so I left kind of at the last minute, was able to go and, and ride the storm out at my family's home in Mississippi. So I still kind of experienced it there. And so mm. my emotional experience kind of began there, you know, not even having my wife there to be, with you know, be you. part of that. So she's dealing with her own emotions. She knows I'm going through the storm. And so she's worried about me and am I safe? You know, mm -hmm. We're dealing with a pretty significant storm even where we were. And so it really, the emotions began there of just the unknown. Yeah. And so then from that day for two months was the fear of the unknown because we had no way of knowing. And it came down to little things, you know. Uh, boxes of pictures that were on the top of a closet or, you know, journals or things like that, you know, did the water get high enough that maybe we save those, th those yeah. things or whatever it was. And it really wasn't until that day where we were actually driving down the interstate, very barren, mm. rolling into New Orleans to see no traffic on the road and, and to see absolutely nothing green growing in the city because the whole thing had been underwater to see absolutely nothing but a barren wasteland. Wow. Everything looked different. It actually was a little bit tricky figuring out, are we turning on the right streets? <laughs> yeah. You know, because nothing looks right. Nothing looks the same anymore. 
You know, so that whole process, just the expectation, the the unknown, what are we going to find? What's it going to look like? And then walking into the building that day and just, first of all, you know, after Katrina, there was such a, a widespread search for life. Hmm. And so every door was marked with a code. And, and that code represented if they found dead bodies hmm. in that apartment or if they found animals in that apartment. Uh, and those sorts of things. And so you walk in and that's the first thing you see. See those codes is, on your door. Yes, to know that somebody came in here. I'm glad there's a zero there. Yeah. <laughs> but somebody came in here looking to see if, if we were here and if we had perished in this. Mm. That's such a sobering reality to see that. Yeah. But then to walk in and to see absolutely everything, you know, it, it's impossible. I have pictures, but it's hard to put it into words. Of, of what it looks like when everything is, is sitting in water and floating around. It all gets moved. Know, and, for two months. Yeah. And nothing looks the same. You know, we're climbing over piles of debris, not realizing even sometimes what we're standing on. And so at that moment, it was just desperation in a sense. You know, just tremendous grief, hmm. feeling overwhelmed, um, having to wear a hazmat suit, you know, even to walk oh, wow. in there in that situation. Uh, and so it was absolutely overwhelming, and it's really difficult, actually, to to describe all of the emotions, yeah. you know, that were flowing at that time. Do you have anything from that apartment? I, I do. You know, that's kind of a funny story. Um, I, I've been a little bit of a tool addict my whole life, and uh, many of my tools were craftsman tools from Sears, which is, you know, now defunct. <laughs> yeah. but, but at the time, they still honored their warranty, and Sears actually replaced quite a few of my hmm. tools that I salvaged from the storm. Uh, and then we had two wood carvings that were done by a friend of ours in Bolivia. Hmm. They were hand-carved things, and so we brought those two wood carvings out. And I think it took about six months of me bleaching those regularly <laughs> to kill all of the algae and things that were trying to grow the mold that was Inside growing out there. of those wood carvings. <laughs> but we did manage to save them, and they're actually both hanging in our home now. As a special little remembrance of, yes. of what happened. But that's it, yes. though, right? That was it. That was it. Some craftsman tools and those two wood carvings. That's it. Wow. So going back to your, your point earlier about you didn't have to dig through all that and clean it up and try to rebuild like the vast majority of people do. Right. Uh, so understanding that that's where most people are in the midst of a storm like that. And that kind of leads into this desire to want to help others to, to, to clean up and uh, to get an area safe and secure again. So talk a little bit about how then this has evolved into going from growing up in a culture where people just took care of one another, right. experiencing a great loss yourself, your family, and now how can I help others? Sure. So, you know, following Katrina, I mean, McGregor was so gracious to us. Um, we, we came in, and I mean, having been married a year and, you know, just lost everything, we, we had groups here that were throwing new showers for us, you know, mm. baby showers, things like that, replacing things for us. We had a family here in the home, of, here in the church, who gave us a home to live in for about seven months, rent-free, you know, to try to recover. And uh, I remember sitting down with, with Dr. Powell at the time, and he had just kind of said, let me know how I can help you. And I walked in one day and said, listen, I, God called me into ministry and, and I need to be ministering in some way. And, and so he said, well, let me think about what we can do. And so they used, I think, what was called the minister in residence position at the time to, to bring me on staff at the church simply to lead mission teams to Mississippi to help with the recovery from Katrina. Yeah. 
And so it was as I started leading those teams up there that I even became more aware of Southern Baptist disaster relief mm. because we showed up and there's all sorts of groups from all over the place, some very well organized, some not so well organized. Um, but you drive around and you would see the Southern Baptist sites where, where everyone is kind of set up and, it, and it's a command site. Mm. And to see the yellow shirts everywhere. And, and so that kind of introduced me more to thinking about the organized Southern Baptist disaster relief. You know, what would it be to be a part of that? Obviously, a lot of life kind of took place, you know, between then and now, but that was kind of my first introduction to that. Seeing that. Talk a little bit about Southern Baptist disaster relief and, and, and what that what that means, because there might be some people listening going, well, I didn't know the Southern Baptists were involved in disaster relief. Right. That's a great question. So, you know, let's kind of break it down, um, you know, almost like going back to seminary and talking about the Baptist Heritage class. How's the Southern Baptist Convention set up? So we have the Southern Baptist Convention, which is made up of individual churches, right? and each individual church is autonomous. And so then within the convention, we have the state conventions. And so we take disaster relief, and disaster relief, I think, is a tremendous example of what can happen when churches partner together to, to do more than they could do on their own. And so Southern Baptist Disaster Relief exists under the North American Mission Board, which is our U.S. and, and Canada-based mission agency within the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and actually, Southern Baptist Disaster Relief as a whole is the third largest disaster response organization in the country. Wow. It's, it's a very large entity. We've actually trained more volunteers than the Red Cross has. Mm. And so it's a very large, very well-organized um, uh, undertaking but with very few paid employees. And so everything is going to actually boots on the ground, get the work done type of things. With volunteers. So we have Southern Baptist Disaster Relief under the North American Mission Board. And then each state convention has their own disaster relief organization as well that's kind of all tied together. So here in Florida, we have the Florida Baptist Convention and we have Florida Baptist Disaster Relief. And then that's made up of seven different regions within the state of Florida. So obviously you can see there's a lot of organization, yeah. a lot of trickle down that goes with this. And then those regions, within each region, there are individual churches that have chosen to establish disaster relief teams. And then there are associations that have chosen to establish disaster relief teams. And so then all of those teams and then individual volunteers and some of the other ministry areas that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about all kind of work together to make it function. Yeah. You said third largest. Give me a number. How many people... Are involved. I, I don't even know. Uh, I caught you off guard know. there. No. no. Don't little, have that number. Little homework assignment I'll for you. I'll do some homework on that one. <laughs> it's a yeah. lot though. And to say the third largest when you think, you know, with you know, would Red Cross be one of the largest ones? Yes. I know. Yeah. Samar uh, Salvation Army, Red Cross. Cross yeah. Uh, I believe it's Salvation Army, Red Cross and us. And it's um, interesting that uh, those get a lot of the publicity in these uh, events, but uh, the Southern Baptist relief, disaster relief teams are just Silently, I wouldn't say silently, but quietly doing so much of that work, cooking so many of those meals that the Red Cross is delivering. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so there's that, there's the breakdown and what then would, uh, how would individual churches then potentially be involved in, let's say in Florida for the Florida Baptist disaster relief? Sure. So let me kind of maybe add one other piece of information that will help get us to answering that okay. question. And that is that within Florida Baptist Disaster Relief, there are eight different ministry areas. And so any individual, any individual can go to a training event 
These are hosted around the state in each in each region, usually in the spring because we want to be ready for hurricane season. Right. And you can be trained to volunteer in one of these ministry areas. And so examples of that would be feeding. You mentioned, you know, all the food. And, you know, here in Florida, we have two mobile kitchens that are capable of producing 40,000 meals per day. And then that food is then distributed by the Red Cross. And so 40,000 meals in a day. 40,000 per day. Wow. It is a tremendous capacity. (laughs) I didn't want that to slip by. I mean, that's a lot of food in one day. It is. Yeah. It wow. Is. Okay. So that's one of the areas. So feeding. there's feeding. And then there's on-site logistics. A lot of times this has to do with, you know, when we set up these big command sites, there's a lot of equipment, uh, a lot of valuable equipment, to be mm-hmm. perfectly honest. And so on-site logistics and, you know, deals with a lot of the security issues. They deal with getting, you know, semis in and out, getting things where they need to be, because we do have a lot of equipment. And then we have all of these cleanup and recovery units we'll talk about in a minute. And all of that has to be staged every night. Hmm. You know, while people try to get some sleep, we have shower units we bring in. We have laundry units we bring in. We have temporary childcare units we bring in to help with different situations. Wow. So those are those are some of them. There's there's all these areas, but then cleanup and recovery is the one that we're really focused on here. We do have volunteers at McGregor that are serving in some of these other ministry areas, but cleanup and recovery is a little bit different. These are these are the guys that actually load up the trailer and head out to someone's home with chainsaws and tarps hmm. and shovels and do the the work at someone's home after a disaster. And so about three years ago, when Wade and I started having this conversation about what would it look like to have one of those teams here, uh, I started looking into it and I realized that our region here in Southwest Florida really doesn't have many active teams. Hmm. Very, very few in, in our region, which is Region 6. And also Region 7, which is more southeast Florida, Miami, that area. Very few active teams in South Florida. And so we just began to really see there's a tremendous need here for this sort of a team that can actually go out and do, you know, the grunt work, so to yeah. speak, you know, after a disaster. And so for us here at McGregor, that's one of the things that, that I'm really focused on is establishing our team. And because cleanup and recovery is a little bit different. When there's a disaster, anyone who's a trained volunteer with Florida Baptist Disaster Relief can get a call out to go respond to that disaster, say with feeding, logistics, childcare, whatever it may be. But in cleanup and recovery, we're only called out as a team. Mm -hmm. And so even if someone is trained in that area, they can't necessarily respond very well unless they're attached to a unit, which is at a local church or at an association. That is different. My mom was part of the Florida Baptist Disaster Relief for years, and uh, she was involved in the, the feeding side. Mm-hmm. And so her and her friend, that she did it with a friend, my dad was not into that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they would get the call, and they would go. And uh, I know for Charlie, she ended up down in uh, Port Charlotte, that area, at a church there. So yeah, I know how that, that works. I saw my mom right. for quite a few years involved in that directly. But I didn't know that about the, the cleanup and recovery teams. They stay together as a team. Now, what's the typical size of a team and what all do they do? Well, the size of the teams can vary depending on the skills of the team members. Uh, and, and then job assignments are kind of given to teams based on what your capability is. But I would say the average team is probably, as far as the team that deploys, mm-hmm. it's probably around eight folks, eight to ten, something like that. That gives you enough people to really go out and tackle a job. They might be a little bit bigger than that. They might be a little smaller than that. But then it also has to do with, you know, what kind of equipment do you have? If it's a, if it's a debris removal job, 
and we've got massive live oaks, you know, that are laying on someone's house. You, you really can't do that unless you have heavy equipment. Right. And so some of our cleanup and recovery teams actually bring heavy equipment with them as well. Uh, that's generally owned by one of the team members that they're loaning out to, to the team to go do that. So are you in the process now of, in, of kind of enlisting and recruiting a team here at McGregor for that, that purpose? Yes, we have been working on that for a while now. And my hope is to get to the point where we have at least 60 trained volunteers so that when we need people to respond, there's a large enough pool. You know, everyone's got different schedules and different commitments and things like that. And so I want to make sure that we have a large enough team of people that has been training together, that has been working together, that trust one another, you know, to be around chainsaws and things like that, you know, working together at the same time, that, that we have plenty of people to pull from to be able to go and respond wherever we're needed. That makes sense because I was thinking, you know, if you had 12 people on your team and, and you got the call, what happens if four can't go? Well, you're, you're, you're sunk. But I love Absolutely. your idea. You, got, you have a, a group of uh, 50 or 60 that are ready to go. That's awesome. So how, how far along are you in your uh, getting to your goal of, uh, of 60 uh, team members? We're actually about, we have about 30 people at this point who have expressed interest. Awesome. I'd say about half of those have already been through training. And we, we have a training up coming up here in about a month, and quite a few people have said they're going to go to that training and get trained. Uh, and so we're hoping our numbers, you know, really increase with that. And, and this year, actually, because of COVID, uh, the state is even offering that training online. Oh, wow. And so for people who are unable to travel to one of these regional trainings, they can go online, complete the background check, uh, and then watch the training modules there, and then they'll have their badge mailed to them later. That, that makes it a lot easier, especially. Sure. Um, so if there is a hurricane this next season, let's say you have your team up and running. I'm just theoretically talking now. Uh, and there's a hurricane that hits, let's say, in the panhandle. There's a potential that your team would be called to mobilize there, correct? Yes. Let's say a hurricane hits <laughs> us directly here in Lee County somewhere. Uh, I'm sure they might bring other teams in, but would your team also have the potential to be mobilized even though it's in our own area? Not the potential. We absolutely would be the first okay. ones to respond to that. You know, the, the way that disaster relief is really structured is there, there are small disasters and then there are really big disasters. And so the first thing we want to be able to do is to make sure that we can respond to things that happen here in our own community that might not be massive scale Disasters. In the past, we've had some, you know, localized tornadoes in Cape Coral. Right. We've had some localized flooding, say, in Bonita Springs, things like that. And so we want to be able to respond to help with mm. those types of, of situations, even though it's right here. Same thing with hurricanes. We're actually, it's critical that we be able to respond first because we know the area best. Yeah. And we're kind of the ones that will be here that when those other troops start arriving from North Florida or from other states, wherever they're coming from, we're the ones that will be kind of directing and pointing them, hey, here's where we really need you to go. What do we take what, the lead? What we need you to do. Absolutely. Yeah, that's neat. As as you were talking about the 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 cleanup and recovery part of that, I and I don't know if this is part of why you have a in, more interest in this area, but I started thinking the the feeding and all that, how important that is, but a lot of times those folks don't ever come in contact with anybody. When you're out there cleaning up and helping somebody recover, you, I'm assuming oftentimes you might be interfacing with a, the homeowner. Always. Yeah. Always. In fact, you know, there, there are multiple interactions. You know, and, and people often ask us, why do you do this? Why, why do you come? You know, I, I remember sitting, you know, on, on porches with people after Hurricane Katrina and always hearing that question. 
why are you here? Like, mm. why bother? Why do this? And, and there's a real simple explanation for that, and that is for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Because anybody can go and put a tarp on someone's roof. Anybody can go crank up a chainsaw and start cutting trees and getting them out of someone's yard. But we go with eternal hope of the gospel. So we don't want them to just have a temporary hope because we put a tarp on the roof and now it's not leaking anymore. We want them to have that eternal hope in Christ. And so our disaster relief program is, is structured so that everyone understands whenever you're interacting with a homeowner, you're there as an ambassador of Christ. Mm. It's a gospel conversation every single time. And so the first people that homeowner are going to meet are what we call our assessors. Assessment teams actually come into an area where there's been a, let's say for us, there's been a hurricane. So the assessment teams arrive and they start driving around neighborhoods looking for people who might need help. They walk up to someone's house, introduce themselves. Hey, we noticed you got a tree laying on your house. Can we help you with that? Oh, by the way, let us tell you about Jesus. You know, and so that's that first interaction is even though someone's there to look at their their tree, their roof, whatever it is, mm -hmm. they're hearing the gospel already with that first contact. Next person they're going to meet is that cleanup and recovery team that shows up and says, hey, we've been assigned your job to come and work on. And every cleanup and re recovery team carries a chaplain with them. Mm. And so the chaplain is there specifically to make sure that spiritual needs are addressed. Wow. And then all team members are at least minimally trained in being able to share the gospel because you never know who's going to have the best rapport with that homeowner. Yeah. And then at the end of the job, every person, every, every home that we serve uh, is gifted a Bible that everyone on the team has signed oh, wow. and, and gives to them as a gift. Yeah. Talk about a great opportunity, man. That, that is just, cause people are at a very low point, a very, you know, just as you described how you felt right. and for somebody to not only come along and help, but then obviously to share the good news of Christ, man, that mm -hmm. is so, that's what I love about that part of the Florida Baptist disaster relief is what you guys are doing. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for all the other stuff too, but sure. y'all have the kind of the, you're at the front door there with those folks and have that opportunity to share right. the gospel in so many different ways. So that's awesome. All right. So as we wrap up, um, how can people get involved if they're listening, if they're part of McGregor and they say, yeah, I think I want to, I'd be interested in that. What, what's their next step? So the first thing that any volunteer is going to need to do is, is to attend a training. Uh, because we partner with organizations like the Red Cross, we partner with FEMA. Uh, we have very good relationships with Homeland Security. Because of all of those partnerships, every one of our volunteers has to be background checked and trained. Mm -hmm. And so that's to, that's to say to our partners when we show up, hey, these are trustworthy people that you can allow into this disaster area and you're not going to have to worry about them. Absolutely. And so anyone who wants to volunteer does have to attend one of these regional trainings. Uh, you can find information about that on the Florida Baptist website, or you can contact our missions and evangelism department or get in contact with me directly. We'll point you how to get to the training. Uh, and then really just let me know personally of their interest mm. so that not only are they pursuing training with the state to cover that end, but then I'm building a relationship with them as well. Right. What we'll do is we'll put your name and email uh, in the show notes for this uh, podcast so folks can easily get a hold of you. And if they don't have that, they can always call the church office and uh, We'll be glad to point them in the right direction. So, yeah, I, I think this is awesome that our church is is moving in this direction to have a team, and it sounds like you're not too far off. Well, actually, we're uh, we're picking up our trailer this week. Really? Oh, awesome! So as of as of this weekend, we officially have a cleanup and recovery unit. 
All right. Going to have big painting on it and it everything. Have the disaster relief. I still have relief. to line that up, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, is so, yeah. that is so awesome, Ron. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming by and, and just kind of sharing your heart and uh, a little bit more about this ministry, because I have a feeling a lot of folks, uh, not just in our church, but around the country, don't know all that Southern Baptist and in our area, Florida Baptist Disaster Relief does. And it is amazing what they do. And I'm, we're excited to spread the message. Yeah. So grateful for you. All right. Well, this wraps up another episode of Here at Home. And thank you, Ron, for joining us and being a part of our podcast. And thank you listeners also for being a part of our podcast. What a blessing to be able to share what God's doing here at home and to be encouraged together. And if you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast, please take a moment to do that right now. And while you're subscribing, you might want to check out our other podcast channels. Ron, we have other podcast channels. That's right. And they can head on over to hereathomepodcast.com. That's hereathomepodcast.com for all the details. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you in a couple weeks back here at home.